Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 10, and specifically verses 19 to 25. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, that's our scripture reading, and our sermon passage this morning is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. So again, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25 is our scripture reading, and our sermon text is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. It is about to be read to you. This is the Lord speaking to his people. Please give ear, give your full attention, turn over your hearts and your minds as you listen to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if you will, turning to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you, O Spirit, that you caused men to write down exactly what you gave them to write. We thank you that you employed their personalities, that you used their life experiences, and yet, O Lord, we're grateful that every word of your word is your word. Every word of the Bible is yours. We're thankful that scripture has been preserved, that it's been passed down to us. We're thankful for this precious gift. But we're also thankful, O Lord, for the author of this precious gift, the author of all scripture, the Holy Spirit. And we pray that he would guide us now as your word is preached. We pray for his blessing upon the preaching of your word. We pray that he would help us to understand his intent. We pray that in our understanding, that by our understanding, through our understanding, O Lord, you would be exalted, that you would be glorified. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you in particular, but for me, the last few months have been a discouraging time. It's been hard in many ways. And I'm one who hasn't experienced or suffered firsthand the effects that have happened in our society. I haven't uh, necessarily, I don't believe, I had a cold, I think, back in uh, the earlier part of the year, but I don't think I came down with uh, the coronavirus. I haven't been affected in terms of employment like so many people in our society have. And then I think for for many of us, I hope it's not uh, unsafe for me to sort of Uh, extrapolate out to to others of us in this congregation that that it's been hard, it's been discouraging, it's been challenging uh, in many ways for a variety of reasons. We're cooped up in our homes, we don't really feel like we can get out, we can't really fellowship with one another. It's been difficult. When you read through 2 Timothy, when you read through this letter, the second letter that Paul wrote to his spiritual son, you get the impression that Timothy, at least at this point in his life, is discouraged as well. And while Paul doesn't directly mention it in, first, in 2 Timothy, he doesn't necessarily or directly mention the, the, the specific thing about which Timothy is discouraged, most commentators speculate that Timothy was experiencing a period of discouragement in his ministry to the Ephesian churches. Well, this week's passage is one of the passages in the letter that gives an indication of Timothy's discouragement, which he had apparently told Paul about. And so Paul seems very deliberate in his response to Timothy and in writing to him to encourage him, to build him up, to spur him on, to give him strength. He tells Timothy that he thanks God for him as he remembers him regularly in his prayers. He tells Timothy he is reminded of Timothy's sincere faith as well as the faith of his mother and his grandmother. And he encourages Timothy to fan into flame the gift that God gave to him when he first believed. What Paul indicates then in our passage this morning is that there are actions that Timothy can take, that we can take, to pull ourselves up out of discouragement. Timothy and all believers in Christ are not mere victims. We're not victims to circumstance. We have been equipped to rise out of discouragement. Now, everyone suffers discouragements in their walk with Christ, but you can make choices that cause you to remain discouraged. Paul tells Timothy what he can do. He tells us what we can do to help ourselves become less discouraged. So here's what I'm asking you to think about as we work our way through the passage today. God calls you to fan into flame the gift of the Holy Spirit given to every believer by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a bit of a mouthful. I'll say it again, but slower. God calls you to fan into flame the gift of the Holy Spirit given to every believer by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The sermon today has only two points. The first point is thanksgiving for sincere faith. And the second, growing the gift. The first point, thanksgiving for sincere faith. The second, growing the gift. So let's look at the first point this morning. Thanksgiving for sincere faith. Paul has already addressed Timothy in verse 2 as his beloved child. Paul, Paul considers Timothy to be his spiritual son. And now in verse 3, he expresses his thanksgiving for Timothy. He says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. 
And this is a good reminder for us, brothers and sisters. It's a reminder that it's an encouragement to know that we're praying for each other. How encouraging is it for you to hear from someone, and I'm praying for you, brother, I'm praying for you, sister. I know you're going through a hard time right now, or I don't know exactly how you're doing, but I just wanted you to know, this morning I woke up and I prayed for you. What an encouragement that is. And Paul is letting Timothy know this. Paul also references his ancestors, the Old Testament saints who had a true faith in God, who trusted in the coming Redeemer. Paul is pointing out in doing this that he is not the first of his kind. He's pointing out that he did not invent the faith. As so many today want to say, Paul was the inventor, the originator of Christianity. Jesus came up with one thing, and Paul took it in a totally different direction. Paul is saying this is not the case. He's rejoicing in the faith of the Old Testament saints who preceded him. He's not part, uh, he is not part of, of something patently new. He follows a long tradition of true faith in God. He follows in the, old te- the footsteps of the Old Testament saints who believed in Christ before the Incarnation. And this is a great source of comfort for Paul. And it should be the case for Timothy as well, who's half, half Jewish. Paul, Paul identifies very strongly with his Jewishness. You read the book of Romans and his longing for his brothers and sisters, his Jewish brothers and sisters, to come to a true and saving faith in Jesus Christ because he understands, he knows that their system of belief is not true and that they can't get to heaven by continuing to follow in the footsteps of those who do not believe in the coming Messiah, the one who indeed truly came. Paul says that his thanksgiving to God is given with a clear conscience. When Paul was a persecutor of the church, he hated Christ and his people. His his conscience could not possibly have been pure prior to his coming to faith in Christ. But now he loves Christ. He stands in line with his true ancestors in the faith with a clear conscience. And brothers and sisters, this is very precious for you and me as well. Some of you still, some of us still carry with us the baggage of behavior in our past lives. We carry with us to this day sinful things that we have done earlier in our lives. And if Paul did this, it would have debilitated him. He would not have been able to say that he, that he stands here, that he comes before the Lord with a clear conscience that he can pray without anxiety or worry or guilt because he persecuted the church in such a heinous way. And so with a clear conscience, Paul remembers Timothy in his prayers night and day as Timothy labors among the saints in Ephesus. In verse 4, Paul writes, As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Paul is thinking back here to the last time that he and Timothy were together, when they, when they parted ways. Paul is referring uh, to what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons, persons not to teach any different doctrine. When Paul was going on from Ephesus... It was a tearful separation of those two. They loved each other. They were dear, dear friends. And so it was a sad parting for Timothy, who shed tears. It was no less a sad parting for Paul. And the mental image of Timothy's tears at this uh, parting from one another, it comes to his mind. 
Being reminded of his tears, Paul in turn wants to remind Timothy of a few things. And that's another thing that we can say about the Christian faith. It is a, it is a faith that remembers. One of the ways that you can encourage yourself in a time of discouragement, a period of discouragement in your life, is to remember. In verse, he says in verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Paul here is reminding not only himself, when he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, he's reminding Timothy of this as well. He's taking Timothy back to first things, those things of chief importance. He's reminding Timothy of when he first came to faith in Jesus Christ. But he's also reminding Timothy of of the, the upbringing that he had in a Christian family. Now, Jesus isn't mentioned explicitly here. But when Paul talks about sincere faith, he's talking about the faith in Jesus Christ. The object of true faith is always Jesus. We talked about this before. It's, It's nothing new. But so often in the world, what you're told to believe in is anything but. It's it's yourself, it's it's belief in faith itself. Just you've just got to believe. That is, that is not the Christian, that is not the biblical perspective on faith. Faith always has as its object, if it is true faith, it is, if it is saving faith, it always has as its object Jesus Christ. Faith itself isn't the object, it's the instrument. You Think of it as, a, as, a, as an organ, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a body part that you have that enables you to lay hold of Christ Jesus. It seems as though Paul perceives that Timothy and the hustle and bustle of pastoral ministry has in some way forgotten about the object of his faith. And Paul here is encouraging Timothy by reminding him of Jesus in an indirect way. It's possible, brothers and sisters, believe it or not, for ministers of the gospel to forget about whom they preach. And to not think about Jesus Christ. You probably know this from your own personal experience about yourselves. It's easy for all of us to lose sight of what is most important. We can all lose our focus on Jesus. Even the guy with the shiny red face standing up in front of you today. We do it. We lose sight. We lose focus. We, we start to get distracted by things. We, we begin to wander and stray. Paul is causing Timothy to refocus. He's taking his head and he's shifting it off of what has distracted Timothy and he's causing him to look upon the face of the Lord Jesus Christ yet again. He's reminding Timothy of the reality of his faith in Christ by reminding him of the historic depth of his faith. Paul mentioned his own ancestry in verse 3. He knows that he is a recipient of of, of an inheritance, faith in Jesus, that has been handed down from past generations. And now he's reminding Timothy of his own ancestry, although a more recent one. Paul is showing here that this is not subjective. It is an objective reality. And so Paul points to Timothy's more recent history, a personal family history, the faith of his grandmother and the faith of his mother. It's now Timothy's faith. The person in whom they believe is the one in whom Timothy believes. And so Paul is showing Timothy that he possesses an inheritance. Now, 
When I was little, I don't remember exactly how old. I don't actually remember doing this, but I was old enough to speak in complete sentences. And my mother's father, my, my grandfather, Papal, we called him. Somehow I had seen his, this shotgun that he had. It was a double-barreled, 20-gauge shotgun, a Savage Stevens. And somehow I got it in my head that I wanted that shotgun. And I had the audacity, when my grandfather was still at that point in good health, to ask him, Papal, when you die, will you give me your shotgun? And he did. Now, now, objectively, in one sense, in a material sense, this shotgun, it's not, it's, it's not worth a, a lot of money. You don't, you don't, nobody who's watching this out there, there's no point in breaking into the house and trying to steal this thing. You're not going to get a lot for it, okay? Please. But in another sense, it is one of my most prized possessions because it was given to me from my grandfather. It's one of those things, those tangible things that I have to remember him by, and I don't have a great memory of him. He, he died when I was 10 or 11 years old, so I don't have a, a real strong memory of, of my maternal grandfather. It's a valuable possession. And what Paul is, is talking to Timothy about here is that he too has received an inheritance. That's a different kind of thing. It wasn't, it wasn't that his grandmother gave it to his mother and that his, his mother went off and gave it to uh, him. It's not, not in the same way that you get a gift from, from someone who, who predeceases you. And yet what, what Paul is telling Timothy is that he has this gift. Timothy has inherited a far more precious gift than that shotgun that I got from my grandfather. And it is a gift, too, that has been handed down from generation to generation. We hand it down by teaching our children, by instructing them in the ways of the Lord. By raising them up in the way that they should go. By teaching them about the the, the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And if Timothy is doubting the sincerity of his faith, he shouldn't because the sincere faith of his grandmother and his mother is being demonstrated in Timothy's own life. And Paul is looking at it and he is saying, I can see as much as it is possible for me to see that you have a true faith in Jesus. I'm vouching for you here. And so what Paul is saying here is that Timothy should take heart, not because his grandmother passed the gift to his mother, who then in turn passed it to him, but because the same God who gave the gift to his grandmother and mother has given that gift to Timothy. And by implication, we can draw out from that that if God has given you the gift of true faith, no one, nothing can take it away from you. And that is extremely encouraging, isn't it? You can stand in the face of those who hate you if there are those out there who do. And you don't have to draw your sense of encouragement or discouragement in that case from how much they hate you. Because you know that your Father who is in heaven loves you. And if He loves you, there is no one, no one, who can do you true, lasting, ultimate harm. Well, that takes us to the next section, the, the, the final section, the second section of our sermon today, growing the gift. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. But Paul is sure that the sincere faith of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice dwells in him as well. And because of that, he can tell Timothy to fan, in, to, to fan the gift into full flame, to rekindle it if it has uh, sort of died down. 
As one commentator has put it, it is the reality of Timothy's sincere faith that encourages Paul to expect as much from Timothy as he, as Paul does, from himself. Paul expects a lot from himself. But because Timothy has the same faith that Paul has, Paul expects just as much from Timothy as he does from himself. Now, we think of Paul as a super apostle, as a super Christian. There's no way that I can match Paul in zeal and in knowledge and activity and, and, and work on behalf of, of the kingdom. There's no way. And yet what Paul would probably say in response to, to the statement I've just said is, yes, you can. You have the same gift. You have the same faith. You have the same Lord. You have the same spirit. And so it is good to know, it is good to be reminded that we have a true and living faith in us. If Timothy did not possess a sincere faith, he would have true reason to be discouraged. But since he does truly believe in Jesus Christ, he has true reason to be encouraged. Timothy has this gift, this inheritance that was given to him by God, just as it was given to his mother and his grandmother. That fact alone should be a source of encouragement for Timothy. And so he ought to be encouraged, but when he's discouraged, how does he fan that gift into flame? Before we get to the point of answering that question, we need to note the significance of what Paul is saying here. Now his statement about Timothy, uh, reminding Timothy to fan into flame this gift has the force of an imperative, a command. It's, it's not in the imperative voice there, but it has the same force. He's telling Timothy what to do. And what he's telling Timothy to do is to fan this gift into flame. It's something that Timothy has been given the ability to do. God never commands us to do something that we as believers in Jesus Christ are powerless to do. He gives us the ability to do it. Indeed, we could say he does it for us. He does it through us by his spirit. He's not powerless because as verse 7 says, he has been given the spirit of power. Now, this word that's translated fan into flame by the ESV is used only here in the Bible. The, the New American Standard translates, translates it to kindle afresh. We might say that the opposite of fanning into flame, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is found in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, what we read uh, earlier before the start of worship today, where Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. The opposite of, of fanning into flame this gift is the quenching of the Holy Spirit. How is Timothy supposed to fan this gift into flame? Paul doesn't offer an immediate answer to this question. But what we can draw from this right now, where we are in the passage, is that believers must not quench the Spirit. Rather, we must fan the gift into flame. We must rekindle the gift, not allowing the fire to burn low. But Paul does give a hint as to how this is done through his repeated use of the words remind and remember in our passage. In verse 3, he rem Paul remembers Timothy in his prayers. In verse 4, he remembers Timothy's tears. In verse 5, he is reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. And so in verse 6, he reminds Timothy to fan this gift into flame. But in the verses that follow our passage, the verses uh, 8, 9, 10, and following, which are part of this same section of Paul's letter, Paul continues to remind Timothy of things that he needs to remember. 
Specifically in verses 8 to 10 and following, he reminds Timothy of Jesus Christ. He reminds Timothy of Jesus' sufferings and of the salvation that Jesus accomplished for us and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. He reminds Timothy that this salvation did not come to Timothy because of Timothy's own works, but because of God's own purpose and grace, which he gave Timothy in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This gift to Timothy stands outside of time itself. And so it's not affected by time. It's not affected by the circumstances of time. It's not affected by history. This gift is objectively Timothy's. Paul is reminding Timothy of things Timothy already knows, but that he needs to remember so that he might fan his gift into flame. And why is he doing this? Why is there such an emphasis in this passage on remembering, on reminding? It's because we forget. I said we weren't going to make a huge deal in the worship service about Memorial Day, but I think there's a, there's a, there's a lesson to be learned from this, isn't there? Why is it that our nation has said, has, has set apart a day which happens to be today, to remember those who have fallen in service to this country. Why is it? Because the leaders of our country know that we as a people, as citizens of this nation, that we will forget. We'll do it. We're forgetful. We seem to be even more forgetful now than than we've ever been. We have more access to knowledge than any people in the history of this earth. And yet we can't remember what day of the week it is half the time. We don't remember uh, the names of of important people in our lives because we're so distracted. We don't remember to to put our phones down when we're sitting with our family members and and in the the mundane times of our lives, recognizing that those mundane times are what build relationships. After 9-11, you remember this if you were alive at that point, and it's weird for me to say that there are people in this congregation who weren't alive at 9-11, but about half of us were not alive for 9-11. But those of you who were, you remember that people said, we will never forget. There were people in, I'm assuming down here in Texas, there were certainly people in North Carolina and in other parts of the country who had, had, uh, had bumper stickers with, with pictures of images of the Twin Towers, the two towers that had come down. Never forget. But how long did it take for us to forget? How long did it take? How long did it take for us to forget those 3,000 souls who perished on 9-11 in 2001? Maybe not everybody has forgotten, but if you weren't directly personally affected, it's probably a situation for you to sort of go on about your lives and, and, and more or less, for most of the practical purposes, more or less forgotten about it. I'm sure that on 9-11 in 2021, there will be a big service of remembrance on that day. But we forget. But regarding our faith, as important as 9-11 is, and and as significant as it is, and and, and really sad as it is that we forget 9-11, regarding our faith, when we forget, when we fail to remember the good things that God has done for us, it is detrimental to us. It does real harm to us as Christians. When all that we can focus on is the hardship, the bad things, when we cannot seem to lift our gaze above the rough patch in which we find ourselves, it is very bad for us as Christians. And we can go for years being discouraged, having no joy, 
struggling and stumbling and making terrible decisions, even as Christians, even as true believers, when we forget, when we fail to remember what God has done for us. And so what Paul is telling Timothy, what what God's word is telling you and telling me is that we have to remind ourselves and we have to remind others. We've got to remind one another of the work that God did to obtain our salvation, especially the work of God the Son as he died for you on the cross for your sins, as he rose for you from the dead for your salvation. And the primary way, not the only way, not the exclusive way, but the primary way that God has ordained for believers in Christ to receive these reminders is through participation in the means of grace in a local church. The means of grace, you're probably mostly, if not all of you, familiar with that term, that phrase, but you may not remember exactly what those means are. The word, the sacraments, and prayer. These are the consummate reminders of what God has done for you to secure your salvation. And this is why the writer to the, of the book of Hebrews says in, in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verses 24 and 25, And let us consider how to stir one another up to, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't neglect to meet together. Or as the New American Standard puts it slightly more literally, and I think better, don't forsake our own assembling together. Now it's clear that the writer of Hebrews is speaking about the worship assembly on the Lord's Day. Forsaking the public assembly for worship. Skipping worship is neglect. It's neglect of yourself and your family. Now you certainly can and you should read your Bible on your own. You should pray on your own. That is very important, but it's not the same thing as assembling with your brothers and sisters in Christ to hear the word and read and taught and preached and to pray together. God has designed you. This, this is, this is a, a design by, by creation, at creation. He's designed you to be in community with one another. He's designed you to be in a community with believers, of believers. And it needs to be said that for the last couple of months, many believers have been providentially hindered from participating in public worship in person. Some some of us still are providentially hindered in being able to do so. And it's been very discouraging, I think. We have to remember this, however. There is a difference between neglecting or forsaking the assembly of God's people for public worship and not being able to come because you're sick or because there's a widespread danger to people if they venture out. There is a difference. And for that reason, many of us have decided, using, using wisdom, God-given, sanctified common sense, it's probably best for me to stay home. For, for a time, that wasn't even an option for, for any of us to come out. But then when it became an option, and even now, there's still some people who... They're having to make that decision to stay home. That's not the same thing as forsaking the assembling of God's people. But it's still hard. It's not ideal. It's not what we want. When when we're all not here, or maybe to put it better, when we're not all here together, we are missing something, aren't we? Some some of you, your closest friends are members of this church, and and when they're not here for whatever reason, it's, it's hard. And it's a struggle. 
And part of that is we don't have one another to, to stir one another up, to, to spur one another on, to fan into flame, to sharpen the iron that happens between brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the things I think that we can learn from what we have been through over the last couple of months is this. I think most of us here today can say this with absolute conviction. No matter what you, what you think, what your convictions are about the shutdown and about the virus and, and everything else, the response to it, everything else, I think all of us can agree on this. It has shown us the importance of the public assembling of God's people. It's helped us to not take it for granted, perhaps in the ways that, that many of us had been up to that point. It's shown us just how crucial this is for us. And so for those of you who aren't able to be here with us today, we want you to know that we love you and that we're praying for you. And that we want you to be able to come back when you believe it's safe, when you believe you can. We miss you, but we understand. And we're going to pray that that gift that God has given will continue to be fanned into flame, even though right now you can't. You're providentially hindered from being with us today. At the end of verse 6, Paul speaks of the gift which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, does this mean that Paul somehow conveyed this gift to Timothy when he laid hands on Timothy? Now, one commentator helpfully wrote, this does not mean that Paul channeled the Spirit to Timothy, but rather that Paul, by laying hands on him, confirmed the presence of faith in him, on which acknowledgement God gave the gift of the Spirit. So by Paul laying his hands on Timothy, he's confirming, just like he's doing right now in this letter, he was confirming that Timothy had the gift of faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Paul references Timothy's ordination, where he says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And in our passage, Paul mentions only himself laying his hands on Timothy in, in some sort of a separate incident. Now, it may be that this took place when Timothy first came to faith during Paul's first visit to Lystra on his first missionary journey. If Timothy has indeed grown weary, if Timothy has been discouraged in his faith, Paul is seeking to encourage him by reminding him of the gift of the Holy Spirit that he was given when he first believed in Jesus. And so in verse 7, Paul reminds Timothy about the nature of the gift he received. He says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, some of you may have English translations that have a spirit spelled with an uppercase, a capital S. But most English translations that I checked, because the first statement is in the negative, use spirit with a, with a lowercase s. But Paul here, he's not just glossing over the fact that you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. One way to emphasize what Paul is saying here and the difference between the two would be to paraphrase this verse this way. For God did not give us a spirit, lowercase s, of fear, but a spirit, uppercase s, of power and love and self-control. The Holy Spirit, while not explicitly mentioned in verse 7, is most certainly implied in verse 7. Paul is reminding Timothy that he has not been given some lowly, earthbound spirit. Paul is reminding Timothy 
And by extension, you and me, he is reminding all of God's people who belong to him that we have been given the Holy Spirit, a spirit of power, of love, of self-control. And he dwells in your and my hearts. The spirit is, is a spirit of, uh, not of fear or timidity or weakness. And so Timothy does not need to fear for himself because of whatever circumstances he's in. Power is a characteristic of the Holy Spirit. This is another way we can know that, that, that Paul here is implying the gift of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It is by the power of the Spirit that sinners are regenerated, born again. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 6 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. But this spirit of power is also a spirit of love, as verse 7 says. Love is listed in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 as the first fruit of the Spirit. A Christian's life is marked by love because love is a characteristic of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this spirit is also a spirit of self-control. Paul uses a very similar word in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, when he says that an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, etc. Self-control is not only a characteristic that should be present in an elder, but in all believers as well. So Paul is saying to Timothy that he must fan into flame the gift that he was given by God. And he is able to do this because the Holy Spirit enables him to do it. Paul is not commanding Timothy to do something that is impossible to be done. And so we too, when we are discouraged, must fan into flame the gift that God has given to us. We must encourage one another. We need to encourage ourselves too. But we need to do so by seeking encouragement from its source. We must point one another to the spirit of power and love and self-control, who is the gift given to every believer by the Father and the Son. We must encourage ourselves and each other to make diligent use of the means of grace, these ordinary means, the word, the sacraments and prayer given on the Lord's day in the assembly of God's people. We need to spur one another on. And that is because these means of grace serve to remind us of all of the great and the mighty things that God has done to make sure that you and I live with him for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, it is easy to lose focus. It's easy to forget. We've got many, many distractions. And so we've got to remind each other. You've got a duty to remind yourself. You've got a duty to remind your brother or your sister about the true faith, about the true gift, about the fact that we are sons of encouragement, not discouragement. So let us do that for one another. Not because we're so special in and of ourselves, but because Christ Jesus, who dwells in us by his spirit, has secured our salvation by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Amen. Let us pray.
Our gracious God, we thank you that in times of discouragement, you encourage us by your spirit. And you encourage us by the fellowship of your people, by the church. We are grateful that you have made us to be a part of your church and of this specific congregation. We pray, dear Lord, that we might be of service to one another the way that Paul was of service to Timothy. We pray, O Lord, that we might encourage each other to fan into flame the gift that we have been given. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to have joy and contentment and hope and love. We pray, dear Lord, that our lives would not be governed by fear, but governed by the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.